Hi everyone, this is Brian Hayes and welcome to episode one of a great new podcast series that I'll be hosting called The Music Mind. In this series, I'll get the opportunity to do deep dives into the creative minds of some of the best musicians you will ever hear in the world. I couldn't be more excited than to bring my first guest to you. This is the great Mike Hayes, my older brother, 64 years of age as we record this. But I want to let you hear how Mike played more than 35 years ago on this sizzling hot, white hot rock guitar solo from a song that Mike and I co-composed called Fat Cat. Check out Mike in his 20s, absolutely sizzling on the electric lead guitar. Well, hi, Mike, and welcome to the Music Mind podcast. That was an amazing solo there. This was the guitar you played it on. What do you remember about recording that Fat Cat solo? Well, it's a pretty cool uh, song. I remember the, the background sort of really sort of a hard industrial type of sound, and uh, I really thought about it, it as like a, a police car chase, right? Like and I'm just imagining like this down a all these streets with uh, rain and all sorts of stuff pouring down there. And uh, that was what I was trying to get. It's just, it's really like a pitch. I'm not thinking about playing scales or anything like that. I just want to try and get that urgency. There's just one chord in the whole background. It's just easy. Yeah. And, so. <laughs> and I think listening to it, um, what I pick up is just that definition in, in your mind of the notes. Like there's so many people over the years, and particularly nowadays, it's still there. If you go into the local music shop, there's someone shredding on the guitar but when i listen back to that solo every note sounded like you intended that note it didn't sound like was it improvised at the time in your mind or had you yeah, sort of basically yeah? improvised i mean really for me with a lot of these things i've played all those notes before but i hadn't put them together in that order yeah and uh yeah i'm always thinking of melodies and that even though that's a sort of quite an angular sort of guitar sound, that's what I felt uh, it needed, really. Yeah. And the interesting thing, just on guitar sound, one thing I've always loved about your playing is uh, you've got your own sound, even though this is an electric guitar and this is your Bill Lawrence guitar, which was yours at the time, but it's now mine. We've chopped yep. and changed a yep. bit with the gear and it's modified quite a little bit from when you recorded it. But when we listen back to that Fat Cat sound, your guitar sound, there wasn't too many effects on it. Do you remember what sort of effects you had when you played that on it? Um, I think I played it through the uh, uh, the Rockman, the Rockman Sustainer, which yep. was uh, released in about 1985. And uh, that would have went through a, um, a little bit of chorus as well. And I think probably yeah. the chorus is probably on one of the, the Roland DP5s or something like that. But, it's um, a pretty pure sound. I think particularly, basic, yeah. yeah, particularly on the uh, electric guitar, it's hard to, or I believe it's hard to find your voice on the electric guitar, but you've never had that 
problem. It, or you always sound like you uh, when you're playing, no matter what the guitar you're playing. The other thing that I love in your playing is those massive bends, which is a part of your playing. And anyone who is a guitar player will know that it's hard to pull a bend up into tune, and particularly those tone and two-tone bends you do. They've been part of your playing for a very long time. What are you thinking about when you do those almost like a uh, trombone, you know, saxophone, a wind instrument type bend or a vocalist bend? What are you thinking of when you incorporate those into your playing? Yeah, it's really like that. It's more like a trumpet. I'm trying to get like a, a trumpet yeah. or that type of force behind it and... Um, not really guitar. Uh, it, and, and I think that's the one comment that I hear in your playing, and certainly our listeners today are going to hear you play in a whole lot of different styles over a lot of different eras, but you actually sound like you, and you really, to my mind, don't sound like a, a guitar or as if you're not thinking of a guitar sound most often when you're playing. What What are you thinking of? And I know it would change on the song, but I'm sure our listeners will be intrigued about how you've developed your own sound. So what do you think of sound-wise when you're playing? Well, of course, I love the sound of a guitar. I'm absolutely in love with the sound of a guitar. But it's very rare indeed that I'm thinking like a guitar player. I'm hearing sounds in my head, and I'm trying to get that. Uh, if I'm thinking, if it's a jazz type of sound, I'm thinking of somebody like Bob Venier. And yep. of course, and that's that's where my tone goes. Uh, obviously, I can't play like Bob at all, but uh, if I've got uh, audio reference points in my mind, and uh, if I'm thinking of Bob Venier, obviously I'm I'm in down the uh, Marvin Stam, yeah, uh, you know Clifford Brown type of tone. And I think that's the thing: if you've got the tone in your head, you'll work out how to get it. Um, uh, you know, like when you could throw me a guitar, and I'd still find out how to get that sound. And it wouldn't be like from an equipment. I wouldn't worry about, mm. you know, whether the tone is on this or the, the treble. I'd soon just do a couple little tweaks. But it's really, I feel, what you hear in your head. And then you've got to find some way of getting it out. And I think the trick is the music will tell you what to play. Getting back to the the Fat Cat solo. The music told me what to play there. Uh, it's my response, my reaction to the sounds I'd hear in the background. Yeah. And just for our viewers, Bob Venier is a great Australian trumpet and flugelhorn player. We met Bob in Melbourne many years ago, mm. and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, we might just throw up a quick image of Bob here, um, an amazing flugelhorn player. He played the famous solo for the Little River Band's Reminiscing, which I understand was the most played song on US radio for about a decade. Yeah, so Bob, so, yeah. in his own way, has yeah. probably been heard by more people than any other flugelhorn player. Uh, and certainly the trip to Melbourne where we met Bob and Bruce Clark and a whole lot of other amazing moments, mm -hmm. we'll talk about that. Uh, no doubt that influenced you. But from my perspective, I was here when you recorded Fat Cat. Fat Cat was a song we wrote together. Right. We played all of the instruments. We did the arrangements together. From memory, I think we split up the duties that you played all of the guitars and all of the percussion programming. Yeah. And I played the saxophones and the keyboards, including the keyboard bass. Mm. So uh, it was actually recorded in this very room. This That's is right. the original yeah. B&M Studios. And in fact, I remember Mike playing that solo, uh, standing about probably six or seven feet to his right. 
and I was mixing the sound at the time Mike played it. And from memory, that was a first take solo. So my memory of Mike's playing in that era, and we're talking 35 to 40 mm. years ago, yeah. is that he very much was a one-hit wonder. When when you'd hit the play and record, he'd just nail his solos on the first attempt. Um, what's your thoughts on that, Mike? Um, my experience has been whenever I've tried to record something that if I don't get it right on the, the first go or certainly on the second go, I just walk away from it. Agreed. What's your views uh, on that? Yeah, Absolutely, mate. As soon as you don't get that, because that's what you want. I mean, to me, originally the whole idea with recording was to capture an event. Yes. And over time, I feel it's went to more like it's trying to create an event. And uh, it's like if you can't get it the first take or... Definitely, if you can't get the second take, you start laboring over it. And then you start thinking about it. And I really think if you're doing improvisation, you want to uh, suspend judgment. You just really want to respond and be in the moment. You know, I don't think you want to be worrying about, gee, I want to play it like this. Uh, I think that's great advice. And um, we're both music educators. We've taught people from all around the world but the most common thing I say to my students is that music is to me it's just a conversation mm, and okay. if you say something you know we don't always get our conversations right but uh, if you've said something wrong or offended someone you might have to go and apologize yeah. but you never really retake a conversation no no that's right and if we had a script for a conversation it'd come out very stilted like we're yep. talking now at the moment about fat cat yeah uh, I think to use an analogy, if I suddenly started trotting off and saying, gee, the salad dressing was quite nice, you'd be wondering, like, yep. where did Mike just go now? That's like when a guy learns a lick, yep. and he's learned a lick in E7, and which is Fat Cat, and he's now going to try and insert it into that solo. Now, it's going to sound like the salad mm. dressing quote, and uh, it just never fits. So it's, it's got to flow. There's so many people who will watch this podcast and who will dream of being able to take a a personalised red-hot guitar solo or white-hot guitar solo like you did in Fat Cat there. Um, is there a, a jelly bean or a, a pill that you can take that lets you play the guitar like that? Or what's your advice? No, I think really I tried to play like a lot of people when I started and what really turned out to be my advantage, although it didn't seem like it at the time, that I eventually I could worked out that I couldn't play like any of them. Actually, mm. I can't play like any guitar player so that sorts that out yeah but i can play like me and it was a really difficult thing to get your head around at the time like i couldn't play like whoever it was mm. uh, you know larry carlton or whatever and i definitely can't no way in the world i've got no idea what larry's doing i could work out what he's doing but it would never come out even if i got it note for note mm. i could never sound like larry carlton so that's a really interesting point because a lot of the music education over the last 20 or 30 years has been focused on if you go to a music college or university music course, you know, uh, you study all the greats and you transcribe solos and you, the thinking is that if you copy enough people, you'll end up sounding like yourself. But my experience at the output, the people when they come out of those courses is that they all end up sounding largely like each other. Mm, um, yes. Because they've, they've done the same textbooks, they've practiced the same scales, they've played with each other mm. we're going to take you right back to your early beginnings now and we'll throw up a photo here of the great mike hayes when he was two years old so wow. we've got that on the screen there mike what's your <laughs> memories of that little guy 
What do you well, think of when you see that little guy at aged two? Well, really, that's how I am today, to be perfectly honest. Obviously, I'm a little bit bigger. I can't fit in that cute little shirt with the little bunnies on. That's a problem. Um, but apart from that, I've changed uh, physically, obviously. But um, it's still really, I feel the same. I, I basically haven't grown up, which... Um, that childlike approach to music, uh, obviously at that stage I had no idea about music and didn't even know I was going to get involved in music. But um, it's that um, that sort of uh, approach to life. I'll just tell you a really funny little story while yeah, we're on about absolutely. that. Yeah. Um, I was out shopping in down the Brisbane Mall there one day. I was taking a break on a seat outside. I had some parcels there. And this lady came up to me and she said, My gaze, you haven't changed a bit. Still free. And as he's coming up, I'm thinking, who is this person? I'm thinking, is it a student? No, I was trying to, no, I don't recognize it. Is it a parent of the student? I'm still trying to think. And, but the, the, the takeaway was what she said to me is still free. Now I thought actually, funnily enough, that's a, an interesting observation. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's, I think a large part of like when I play or do something in music, um, I just try and be in that moment and um, it's like another world. Like you open a door and you go into another world and yep. it's always gave me great comfort, this whole thing about music. So um, that was an interesting observation. It is an interesting <laughs> observation and, and for our listeners, Mike really has lived the dream for what a lot of people who dream of spending their life involved in music. He's been a professional musician now for, what is it, 50 years? Pretty close. Pretty yeah. close to 50 years. Um, he's one of the best you, you'll ever hear. I see in that photo, um, I love quotes, and if, if I had to put a quote there, I'd put one from the great John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival in a song he wrote long after he left Creedence called Centrefield. I just see on that, and I'll, I'll put it under the photo, put me in coach, I'm ready to play. <laughs> to me, that little guy's got that attitude. He's ready. Yep. And, 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 mate, over the years... Uh, my recollection is you've always been ready to play. You've had the skills under your belt to do the tasks that you had to do. Um, so we'll just shift gears now a little bit and talk about the early years in Gympie when Fender and Gibson were two words that were big in our minds. So, folks, we're here with two iconic brands of guitars. When Mike and I were were growing up in the in the late fifties, in Mike's case, and in the early sixties for me, the name Gibson and Fender were synonymous with. I think for us kids in Gympie, the unattainable or the unreachable. What's your memory? What's your first memory of? Uh, a guitar like this. This is a Gibson ES345. This is actually my guitar again, Mike. You yep. keep nicking my guitars. Right. They're very nice, though. But, uh, what but, other colours are they coming? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but um, you've had a long association in the early days with this type of guitar and with yep. the brand Gibson. Tell us about your earliest memories of a Gibson guitar and what that meant for someone, a kid growing up in Gimpy, which for our listeners... At the time Mike was born, had less than 10,000 people. Today, the Gympie region, it's based in southeast Queensland area, about a two-hour drive from Brisbane, which is the third largest city in Australia. Today, there's about 50,000 people living in the overall region. But when Mike uh, hatched out here in Gympie, 
there was less than 10,000 people. It was, really was a small country town. So what's your earliest memories of the guitar and the brand that you're holding there? Well, I first uh, really saw the style of guitar, the Gibson style, in the back of a, it was an advert, in uh, Downbeat magazine uh, that my first teacher had. And uh, boy, did I absolutely look at that photo. I mean, I looked at it over and over and over and over and over, just sort of basically mm. uh, must have... Burnt the ink oh, off the page. Honestly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what model was that? Uh, in uh, the it was a, the 355 Gibson, the model... The BB King model. BB King model. BB King model. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. It had like the, the block inlays, uh, whereas this got like split inlays and yes. the neck had, had all different sorts of binding. That was their top of the range in this, uh, thin, yeah. thin line F hole. Uh, so this uh, model guitar was probably most closely associated with Chuck Berry. Oh, absolutely. Chuck yeah. Berry. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Chuck Berry. And the, the model, uh, basically below this in the range, uh, with the dot inlays is the 335, which is, uh, associated with Larry Carton. Uh, Lee written now people like that. And, yeah. Uh, so, you know, as a, how old would have you been when you started poring over the Gibson catalogue with the photos of these instruments? What, what age? Oh, look, still I, at school or had uh, you Yeah, no, school? still at school. I got my guitar when I was 13 years. It's, uh, my 13th birthday. Um, well, I, just on that, so that was a tempo acoustic guitar, wasn't yes, it? Yes. We might, we, we, we haven't got a photo of Mike with that guitar, but we've got a photo of, Mike and I, uh, me, I'm the cute little fella in the shorts, and I'm holding Mike's original tempo guitar. Yep. And you had, by that time, somehow or other upgraded to a tempo electric guitar, again, based off of this 335, 345 shape. What's the, yes. how, how do you remember going from the throwaway, uh, $15 acoustic tempo to your first electric. What was, what was going well, on there? It actually wasn't upmarket. It was $17. It was, it was, a, it was the <laughs> deluxe model. <laughs> well, your tempo actually was a, 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 a good ripoff, I think, of these, at the time. It was probably. Oh, the, uh, oh, the electric one, sorry. Yes. yes. The acoustic one was $17 one. But yeah. I think the electric one was probably around $120. So it was a huge, uh, step up the thing. Uh, but what actually had happened by the time I was 14 and a half, I was already playing, uh, in, uh, the, the Royal Mail Hotel in, in, yep. uh, in Noosa down that way. And, yes. um, and definitely underage. They used yep. to smuggle me in. Uh, actually dad used to drive me down. Yes. He didn't have a license or anything. Yes, that's right. And, uh, I'd, I'd back up these singers and that. And the deal was that I wasn't supposed to move off the stage because they, they'd notice that I'm underage as if they mm. wouldn't notice a 14 year old kid anyway. But, it was a different era, yeah. I, I think, yeah. in most places around the world. But so the electric came because you were starting to perform yeah. in places yeah. in, in yeah. groups and obviously needed yeah. that. After about 18 months, yeah. then the, the need come to be or the opportunity, I should say hmm. came to uh really play out and of course uh, the acoustic guitar was not um the instrument i needed for that no and what about the brand fender i'm playing here a, a reissue of the original fender six string bass hmm. um and it's a beautiful guitar uh but the brand fender was as distant for us i think as kids as gibson it you couldn't no. the local music store certainly didn't have a, a couple of gibsons and a few fenders for us to pick from no. um what's your earliest memory of the brand fender in your life and and in the gimpy area well same sort of situation a fender catalog uh 
Mm. I come across one of those. I'm not quite sure how. Maybe from a music store. I'm not sure how I got a hold of that. But uh, it had the whole range of all the Fender guitars through it, uh, the amps and things like that. And um, in particular, the Fender Stratocaster, one which I almost have almost the exact guitar that I was looking at today, which is one of my main guitars that I play all the time. Uh, the only difference was it had a maple neck, and the one I prefer at the moment has got a, a rose neck, a rosewood neck. Um, but the it. The only way you'd ever see these guitars was in the catalogue. You'd never see them live. Yeah. So this, these guitars might as well have been on the moon, really. I remember, um, and I, I imagine our parents must have drove us, but there was a music store in Brisbane in the valley called Harlequin Music. Yeah. And I can remember you and me just dribbling there that, and I don't know what era, I think it was before we got ours or after, but... It was a music store where they would have, mm. you know, the BB King model, yeah. the model Mike's got now, and the 335. You'd walk in and there'd be three or four of this standard guitar up on the wall, and below that, Fender Stratocasters and Telecasters. It was mm. just, for two kids from the bush, oh. it was unbelievable. And, and you know, the yeah. prices on the guitars, they, they might have well as been the price of a Rolls Royce. Yeah. You know, we thought we had yeah. no chance of doing that. No. But I want to now, uh, we've heard you play, Mike, in your 20s, 35 or 40 years ago, but part of the fun of recording this podcast is we've actually filmed a few videos, probably the first time we've been filmed in 20 or more years yeah. playing, yeah. and we filmed one where Mike was playing this Gibson and I played the Fender six-string bass. We'll show it to you now. We just called this one the Gibson Fender Blues, and I think after you see this, um, one of the things with podcasts often when we're talking to people who've got a bit of age on them, I'm now approaching 60 years of age, Mike is 64, that it's a bit of an old when we were good days yep. discussion. It always worries me that days. the good old days, yep. and I think uh, the good old days were there, but today's pretty good too. And this is a chance to let everyone hear how Mike plays right now. This was filmed in June 2021. Have a listen and enjoy the Gibson Fender Blues. enjoy that certainly Mike those fingers still seem to be working well and the the power bends and that sound we talked of before I think it's important for everyone to know that while the Gibson ES345 style guitar was a big part of your early years how long is it since you've actually played 
that style of guitar? Uh, probably well over 20 years. I just picked it up before. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and that's what I want to share with you, that in this podcast, um, that's not Mike's 10th go at that. These are first takes, and he's got a great sound on that guitar. It's a very different uh, fretboard setup to the guitars that Mike normally plays, but the sound is with the player, not the instrument and not the equipment. That's my take. Do you agree with that? Yes, I think just listening back to that tape, uh, it still sounds like me. Uh, yeah. Until still tell that's how I play. Um, and yeah, definitely different feel than I'm used to. So, um, but yep, that's our first take on it. So, and I think it's a good example of, uh, I think if the viewers saw the in depth discussion we had prior to, <laughs> to playing that, we're sort of sitting here almost on two milk crates here yeah. <laughs> with, with just hoping we can both fit in on the screen. So, uh, there wasn't really much discussion no. about who was going to play what, where and when in that. And to me, that's when music is at its best because yeah. it's it's fresh for the players and the audience really gets the chance to, I guess, sit in to the musical equivalent of the conversation we're having, having right now. That's right. If we sat around and really worked at that till we get it right, we wouldn't want to hear it either. No, and I probably agree. people wouldn't either. So, mate, I want to take you right back to the very beginning okay. before you played any instrument what's your earliest memory you were born in 1957 and we've already said that gimpy was hardly the the music mecca it certainly wasn't the nashville new york london or los angeles of the music world what's your earliest memory as a as a child of having an interest in music well i'd say i was probably around about Four. Uh, the first thing I can remember is uh, the pipe band, like the the Scottish pipe band. Right. I uh, remember we were down the street uh, as a family. There must have been some type of a parade, and I was standing uh, reasonably close to the one of the drummers, and he started the snare drum. And I can still hear this sound to this day. It is so loud, even as I'm speaking to you now. I've got the memory of this sound, mm. and I was hypnotised, like the Pied Piper. I started following the pipe band up the street, and later on the family had to try and find me. I, I just wandered off. Yeah. And it was hypnotic. And, and it was very different. I mean, uh, my early memories of that is um, there was no television. Uh, no. Man had not landed on the moon. Yeah. There was no such thing as video. Um, all you really had was the local radio station, or there was a thing in those days called shortwave radio. It was very much... The radio and, and, and when we were kids, we didn't even have a record player in the no, early days. No. <laughs> but one thing about Gympie and, and probably a lot of smaller towns in those, in that era, and we're talking here the very early 1960s, yeah. is they would have a lot of community bands. And my earliest memory of music was similar to yours of the main street of Gympie's called Mary Street and of a Saturday night, the Salvation Army band would be playing or there'd be a band marching up and down and, um, you know, that's my first memory of hearing music. And it's interesting that yours was similar. Yeah. The drummer in a, in a yep. sort of a, a bagpipe band, was it? Or the yes. bagpipes? Yep. The, the Scottish, Scottish band. band. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if that's your first memory of music and you've been associated with music for 50 years or more, um, what is your definition of music? Like you've spent your life in music. If someone asked you the question, what is music, 
How do you think you'd best respond to that question? Well, there's many levels to that. So it's a really interesting question there, Brian. Um, basically, you can go through the situation where people talk about it's pitch in time and all those type of uh, descriptions, and that's yeah. definitely correct. Um, but let's go a little bit deeper, and I'd say that it's a language. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we know, people talk about it being an international language. Yes. Uh, to me, if I went deeper in, in, that, in that same direction, it's where human beings can connect uh, at a very, very, very deep level and you bypass all the things like religion, politics, race, all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, so to me, it's a way of communicating for human beings. Um, they talk about music being like uh, an international universal language. language. Universal yeah. language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say the universal language really for human beings is loneliness. And mm-hmm. this is a way of people connecting. And uh, when I think about it now, that would be my opinion of music now. It's a way where people, like a, a really advanced internet yep. for human beings, where we can all connect. We know that human beings don't like working in isolation and, and living in isolation. So you mm. can express things in music that you just can't with words, as far as that's my... It, it's interesting. Uh, one of our very first influences musically... Um, I think you would agree was the the great Herb Albert. Absolutely. And and Herb Absolutely. talks about for him, and there's a number of really good podcasts out there now, uh, where there's interviews with Herb Albert, and you actually get to hear it from himself. But uh, the trumpet for him was a way of him getting over his shyness. He said he could play, he could express himself on the trumpet in ways that he could never do with his voice so i think you're, oh, you're saying similar things there absolutely yeah you know very shy kid mm. i spent most of my first two years at school outside the classroom okay right? because uh we we had this teacher who uh was really well, well, just probably quite nice the defamation laws i'm not too sure of the no. <laughs> how long they last so if we don't name the but um and, and this teacher is really quite nice to me but the mm. thing is i'd be so upset essentially, mm. that if you were sitting next to me at school, honestly, you're in danger of I'd be throwing up everywhere. So wow. it became okay. like a, yeah. a situation uh, where, you know, for the safety of everybody concerned, mm. they'd put Mike outside. But I wasn't allowed to go home. So yeah. what I did was I'd, they'd leave the door open so I could listen to the classes outside. And of course, what I was doing is looking everywhere else. But I I, I had lots of problems as, as a child yeah. as far as like... Um, Getting over things like that, so uh, the the music was definitely always very was comforting. A, yes, was yes. A, I think for a lot of people, I think for a lot of really good musicians, uh, music was the the answer that they were looking for for yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, you've said something before, which was really important that you could communicate with people uh, in a language where they may not speak your language. And and if I fast forward for I don't know how many years, but my earliest memory of really seeing that happen was when we were playing uh, as the resident group at um, a jazz club at Budrum here, which was a very popular jazz club on the Sunshine Coast. And I remember in that era, tourist buses of Japanese tourists would come. That's right, yeah. And we'd often yeah. be playing to yep. a room full of international yes. people who did not speak their language. And I can always remember at the end of the night, uh, you know, someone f- from Japan or an Asian country that 
that could not speak English at all at that stage beyond a, a, an attempt at hello or goodbye mm. would come up and shake my hand and smile and sort of you just knew they were appreciative of what we had said to them musically, yes. even though we couldn't even say hello to them. So I think the universal language mm. is, is spot on. One of the questions I'm most often asked from students uh, of, of the many instruments that I play and teach is, um, were your parents musical? Now, we shared the same parents, and sadly, we lost our parents more than two decades ago, so it'd be great to ask them this question. But what's your recollection if someone asked you, were your parents musical? How do you think you'd best answer that? Well, uh, certainly mum was. Mm. I remember we had a very out of tune piano. I can certainly vouch now it was definitely out of tune, but it may have been more in tune before it was moved to the house. But yes. Basically, from what I know is that uh, Mum used to sit in at the dances. The the lady who was the uh, the leader of the orchestra, she'd like to um, wander off and have some liquid refreshments from time to time. Mm. Uh, just raspberry cordial, I, I imagine. Yeah. And uh, so Mum would actually sit in and play the piano for however long. Uh, and, and this was the era, again, for our listeners, people watching this all over the world. Um, look, it's fair to say that I think Australia in the nine, in, in, in our parents' time, and certainly in our time as kids, was probably, uh, I was going to say 10 years, but I think realistically 20 years behind the USA, oh, uh, and, and you yeah, know, yeah, uh, in, in most things, yes. 15 yeah, to yeah, 20. Yeah. Um, Sydney, uh, that's Sydney was probably 10 years behind and Brisbane was five years behind that and Gympie, God only knows how many years. It always felt to me like Gympie was another 15 yeah, years. So if you add so, all that yeah. up, we're back in the Old Testament time. Right, but, but you know, when the world was into rock and roll and cabaret and, mm. and all that sort of stuff, Gympie was still very much into old-time yeah. dances yeah. and and. For those of you playing at home, if you Google terms like Maxina, Pride of Erin, uh, Gypsy, Gypsy Tap, Tap yeah. Foxtrot, yeah. Barn Dance, you'll learn a bit about uh, a, a bygone era, yeah. an era when men and women would hold each other when they danced in, instead of being in separate rooms. And m musicians' primary function was to play music for people to dance yes. to, not to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. So mum, when Mike's talking about mum playing at the, filling in at the dances, it's that type of music playing. So, you know. That's right. And I also, uh, another thing about mum that I remember is that apparently across the road from where she grew up, there was a music teacher. And uh, the idea was that she was supposed to take lessons there. And she mm. took some lessons, but uh, from what I understand, mum was a rebel. She didn't want to play scales, she wanted to play tunes. So, yeah, um, and that's interesting, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember that too. I remember <laughs> Mum saying she absolutely yep. hated yep. the piano lessons. And, and again, a different era, that's when you'd be wrapped over the knuckles yep. with a ruler if you played the wrong note. And yep. nowadays you'd be up on about 16 different charges if you, yep. if you even attempted it. But it was a completely different yep. era. And look, while we're talking about this, we'll put up a photo here of Mum and Dad together uh, at a holiday that they were sharing at a beautiful place here at Caloundra, Kings Beach, Caloundra. Mm. And there's also another photo, uh, Mike, of you and me with Dad on a, 
a boat dad used to love the, um, I think they were the tea boats or yep, whatever, boats, yeah. at no what is now called Nooseville, on the Noosa River, and he'd take us out many a time. I remember on, it running out of petrol one oh, time. Oh, many, many a time. And I think mum was ready to throttle <laughs> yeah. him on numerous occasions, but dad loved the idea yeah. of yeah. the challenge, the mechanical challenge yeah. of trying to get a, yeah. a uh, I think it was a one-stroke yeah. motor. I don't think it was even a two-stroke. No, uh, trying to trying to get it to work. Yeah. Uh, so there's a photo there. I'm two and you're six right. there with dad and, and mum and dad together. What about dad? Um, you know, what's your memory of dad's self-confessed uh, music knowledge or how would you describe dad's well, background dad's in what, music? what the whole world needs. He was really uh, an audience. Yeah, we all need to play, and we all need to play to somebody. His claim to fame was that he could play a record player, yes. eventually, and a radio player. And, yeah. um, but always incredibly supportive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, both 100%. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's a little bit about the environment in which you were born into and, and whoever that snare drummer was. Yeah that got you interested um thank you very much yeah. we pass on our thanks to you because mike may not have pursued music if you didn't scare the living daylights out of him Absolutely. with your press role yeah. with the with the band there what's your first memory of being interested in the guitar what's your earliest memory of actually being attracted to this instrument called the guitar well the funny thing is i have a suspicion that it was due to the uh the television show called The Monkeys. Now, I know for certain later on, but I'll just back back a little yep. bit. I used to actually make guitars. Now, it's true. Yes, and this is a good story. Tell, well, tell us about this. I started. Off, I started off. Well, I made two models. Um, one was a Fender and a model, uh, and one Leo Fender wouldn't recognise no, it though. No, he wouldn't. Uh, and I wouldn't have any trouble with uh, patents mm -hmm. or anything. There's no resemblance at all. No. But, uh, I made a Stratocaster-style guitar. I yes. put a whole lot of effort into this. I you painted did? it and everything. With and, house paint? Uh, uh, with, uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, right. and varnished it, the whole yeah. thing. It was really cool. Yes. And um, it must have taken months to do. Yeah. Um, I had one or two um, basic flaws in the design in that I had fish and line strings going through. When I was looking at the photos uh, on the monkeys' records and that, mm. uh, what I didn't see when the strings were going across the pickup, I thought they were actually going through a metal mm. thing, not over them. So that was a little bit of a design That's problem. Right. So I, I had, a, had a steel uh, plate and I drilled some holes in it and put <laughs> the fish and line through. It didn't last that long, I remember, when no, you strum it. No, about right. three strums. That's but, right. um, yeah. And I really hadn't quite got the shallow or grove of machine head situation no, at the top so no. to replace one of those strings you'd be into the pits for quite a while and um I, I vaguely remember that you the other guitar which wasn't the fender was actually sort of a forerunner of the oh, gibson absolutely. Design, wasn't it? It, it was, was a, made, uh, it a, a mason light it was an f hole one and um same problem with the <laughs> i just remember as a kid how heavy these guitars oh, yes. were. I'm thinking if he ever strings this around his neck, he'll, he'll kill himself. No. Uh, it well, was never really performed within the normal playing mode from memory, certainly not standing up. No, it's more like lap steel. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, didn't get to putting a strap on. No. That was probably a good idea. So this is amazing that long before, uh, well, well before you ever received your first guitar, which I understand was on your 13th birthday. Yep, 13th birthday. And that was a... $15 tempo acoustic yep. guitar? No, no $17. 17 yeah, was it? That's it. 17 that's really Okay, from Tooten's Music yes, Store in right. Mary Eric Street. Yep. Yeah, Eric Tooten. So, but before you 
got that guitar, in your mind you had obviously been focusing on this concept of a guitar so much so that you, and, and I only stop to think what our parents must have thought, particularly Dad, <laughs> when you're hacksawing yep. away at this massive like plank of timber. Uh, it, uh, it's a credit that our parents let you just run wild. Well, with see, that. the thing is, it quite yeah. interestingly, Brian, is that now that's I'm about say eleven, ten, or eleven mm. when I'm designing these guitars. But mm. if I go back a little bit before that, uh, you know how at school they always ask you, "What do you want to be when yes. you grow up?" Like a, around the class yes. thing. Now, this yep. is a really important point. I said this is in the I think probably whatever I'm not sure what grade it is, but I said. And they got to me, they said, and what do you want to be, Mike, when you grow up? And I said, a guitar player. The whole class just fell apart. And the teacher particularly, I thought we'd have to resuscitate the teacher. She was yeah. on the floor in stitches. So there's not getting any support there. I'm looking no. at the entire class because mm. this is when you're supposed to be, mm. you can't be a guitar player. This is when you're the fireman or the right. policeman or the doctor or the dentist. And the, the next year they asked the same thing. So yeah. I said the same thing because that's what I wanted to be. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I think this is a really important point in the conversation because um, earlier on we heard you play some amazing solos, one in your 20s and one at age 64. But to me it it seems like, and from that photo of uh, the centrefield photo uh, of you at two, it seemed like you always knew what you wanted to do, that you that is really what you wanted to do. But I need to stress for our, our viewers that in the 1960s when Mike was at school, there was absolutely no such thing here in Australia, in Queensland, and certainly not in Gympie, as a music program. It was just, no. music was, you know, it was mathematics, it was English, it was sport, and that was it. There was a token art class that mm. that we often did. And, and uh, Mike and, and my school experience is, is sort of four years apart. Mm. But, um, and we'll get to it a little bit later on, but, uh, you know, six years after you left school or four years after you left school, we both went to the same school, which in, in the 1960s was a... Catholic college here and it was sort of you either went to the state school or a, in those days a Catholic school mm. in, in the, the town we were in um, but it was only you know four years after you left that a music a, a, a teacher came to the school who actually supported the idea of music and while there was no music program um, it's a great story that we got introduced to some amazing musicians as a result of a teacher who came to Gympie from Sydney and was a little bit, I guess, horrified to see that there was nothing mm. musical at all in any grade in that in that school. Um, so I have a memory of you, and it might be false, but of some guy sitting on stairs, uh, the front porch or something of a house here on Elizabeth oh, Street. Right. Is that right, yeah, that yeah. you went past and there was some guy, often it would just be, I imagine, it would be horrendous, yeah. I only think what he was strumming. No. But well, see, do you remember the, that? The interesting yeah. thing is, even just before I get to that, yeah. the, the interesting thing is the next year that asked what you want to be, and I'd say the same thing, and it was even worse, mm. because I think they were sort of waiting for it. Mm. Anyway, one more year, I'm thinking, the next time around, I'm going to say something yeah. different. Now, I... In my mind, I was determined 
the guitars what I want to do. So yeah. the, the third year was really good because I said, a swimmer. And then they all start laughing again. I said to the kid next time, I'm just trying to work this out. I'm thinking, what's the problem? Like, yeah. And he said, you can't swim. And I'm saying, so? Because the thing is, like, I mean... You had to say something. Yeah, I, I said yeah. I want to be a helicopter pilot okay. because uh, there was a show here, um, Skippy, yeah. Skippy okay. the Bush yeah. Kangaroo, yeah. Yeah. and I yeah. thought the helicopter pilot had a had a good job. Yeah. What good I didn't pick. know at the time is that uh, George Gola, who is a, an amazing yes. jazz guitar yeah. legend that Mike got to play with and got to know quite well, actually George played the banjo in the... Yeah. But the theme music of that, it was probably the most popular show on Australian television, yeah. uh, Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. So I wanted to be a helicopter pilot, but you always wanted to be a guitar player. Right. So fast forward to what you were yeah. just talking about before. This idea is still in the back of my mind, that guitar, right? So it comes up to my 13th birthday. It was yep. Thursday, and mum's driving me to school, and she said, what do you want for your birthday? See this guy who was um, on the the boarding house he's on the front stairs yeah. playing a guitar and I said a guitar because it, it resurfaced again this yeah. whole guitar thing and she said okay now this I remember very clearly um, is that it comes Saturday on my birthday and I got a watch and a guitar one incredible wow. birthday for your 13th unbelievable, birthday unbelievable yeah. never forget it now then I thought fantastic and I remember taking, it was in a cover box, I remember taking the lid off and just strumming across it. And I thought, this is amazing. It's probably all out of tune. But mm. I just thought, what an incredible sound. It just hit me. Like, you know. And then the interesting thing is, and then mum comes and says, and we've got another surprise. I'm thinking, like, holy heck, I've got a watch. And I go, guitar. And guitar. I can't possibly How even cope with yeah. anything else. And she said, you're going to go to lessons this afternoon. Oh, I thought, oh here no. We here oh, we go. Here we go. Formal lessons. You just wanted to, I imagine, oh. just strum it like the monkeys, your heroes All on I TV. All I want is the guitar. Yeah. And this is a really important point because um, I wanted to ask you whether after all of these years and all the interactions with different people, whether you consider yourself as largely self-taught or if someone asked you, uh, you know, how did you become the guitar player you are today, uh, you know, how would you answer oh, that? Yeah, Do you think large yourself taught? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been influenced. I've had a help from a lot of really yeah, good people. But as I said in the opening, I got to find out that I really couldn't play like anybody else. A really funny story is uh, one of my heroes was Don Andrews, a guitar yes. teacher and player. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I, I remember in his book, because I wanted to do everything properly, I remember I had to hold a pick. And yep. at that stage, I was already, already playing. Yep. And, uh, it, the, where, the way it said to hold the pick was different than the way I was holding it. So I decided I'd do everything correctly. Mm. And I was, uh, working out how to hold the pick like it had in Don's book. And years later, when I met Don, because this set me back at least 18 months, I couldn't play hardly anything. Yeah. Because so I'm trying Just to be doing everything technique. properly. Yeah. 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 And so I met Don, and in one of the lessons I said, Don, uh, this thing about a pick, because it was just bothering me like mad, you know. Mm. And I said, like, how do you hold a pick? He said, oh, however it feels comfortable. And I'm thinking, mm. damn, it's got in your book. You've got to hold it like that. He said, no, whatever way it feels comfortable. He said, we've yeah. got to put a picture in the book. But Yes. So <laughs> it's a really interesting thing because um, a topic, you know, our listeners want to get inside of the music mind of great players and – I think there's a term that really applies to you, and that's self-directed learning. 
um, when you think about it, the only teacher that you were forced to go to that you didn't make your own mind up to go to was your first guitar teacher. Is that correct? Absolutely. And it turned out to be the very best thing to ever happen to me. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about your first guitar teacher now? And I I witnessed this from the sidelines. Mum would take Mike to uh, the guitar teacher whose name was, I think, John Hodgins, but everyone called him Bunny. Is that correct? Yes. Back in those days, they had interesting names. You'd have uh, his, uh, my first teacher was Bunny Hodgins. You'd have all guys like uh, Chucky Mallet. Yes. It was the era of the nicknames. (laughs) That's right. But I remember, uh, and we'll use the name that he was known by, Bunny. I remember Bunny had a flat at Wickham Street here in Gimpy, right on, you know, busy intersection. So there was a lot of noise and I don't think him teaching music there was ever a problem because it'd be the sound of semi-trailers and whatever out the front. But mum would take Mike around and and she'd also, not always, but sometimes she certainly encouraged me to come. Mm. And we'd just sit in the lounge room while you had your lesson, uh, you know, at at a table in a sort of a dining room, I suppose, of the flat. Mm. Tell us a bit about Bunny and your you know, your memories of going there and what he meant to you as a teacher and, and how he inspired you to play beyond what you would ever have played, likely, in Gympie at that time, on your own. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm sure things would have turned out far differently if I hadn't run into Bunny. Bunny was a real player. That's important. He was actually a player first. Yeah. And to sit a little oh. bit further than we are apart now, yeah, here, yeah, yeah. across the road, mm. uh, across uh, the, the, the desk table, table basically, yeah, yeah. And to hear this, these notes firing out at you was absolutely like the second, this is like after the, firstly, the pipe band drummer, mm. bang, that's in there, and the sound of Bunny's banjo is in here too. Absolutely. It's just astounding. And talk about inspiring. Yeah. Remember that I was very shy. I didn't want to go to the lesson, so I'm trudging up to the first lesson. Bunny mm. would have been around about my age. Yeah. Uh, maybe I think 62 so. when I went. We thought he was the oldest person on the planet at the time, but I, yeah. I'd say he was our age or oh, younger. Oh, 60s, very young <laughs> folks, if you're listening in. No, that, no, that's that's right. right. I do remember, <laughs> yeah. but I always also remember that he was very fit and always yeah. well-dressed. Absolutely. And he was a performer. Absolutely. In fact, Mike, we'll just we'll play a little video here of Bunny uh, playing, improvising on the banjo, just so that our yeah. listeners can get an idea. Bunny come from the vaudeville era, uh, from the pre-PA era. So one of the things that I remember about him was how loud he could yeah. play that banjo. Absolutely. It was like, uh, you know, what I imagine hearing Louis Armstrong in yeah. his prime was like that. It was just a bigger-than-life sound. Have a listen here. This is Bunny on banjo. Okay, so the first thing that Bunny did, he pulled out this uh, Coles Nick Maniloff Spanish guitar method. Yes, um, and uh, and I didn't know what was going to happen, and. Halfway through the book, actually, I can't play Spanish guitar or anything like that. Uh, we only used about 10 pages in the middle of the book, which was how to read the notes. And that was fantastic. So right from the very first lesson, Bunny uh, taught me how to read music. And apparently I was the, about the second last guy that, uh, that he taught to read music. You just couldn't be bothered with that after then because it was 
I guess, too much bother or whatever. He just he didn't want to do it. So I was very fortunate. I got over the fence there with that. And uh, the strings were really hard for me to press down, but I, I really enjoyed the lesson. I was terrified, but I walked out thinking, yeah, I'd like to do that again, rather than like my impression was I was just going to go there, put up with it, scream my head off and never have to do lessons again. That was my attitude going into it. On the way back, I'm thinking, no, I'd like to do that again next week. And after about the second lesson, Bunny brought out a piece of music called Dear Heart, Mm -hmm. uh, Henry Mancini. Yep. And we started playing tunes. Now, this is the second week, and uh, I was playing it, just very tentatively, but I was starting to get a sound out of it. Um, Then, this is where the self-directed learning thing comes in. Uh, We had a record player by that stage, and we were listening to a a single by Glenn Campbell called Try a Little Kindness. Absolutely, yeah. So we head back down to the the music uh, shop where we'd bought the tempo guitar from, and Mm -hmm. it must say, too, about in those days, what would happen, you'd walk in, they'd have sheet music, and I remember Eric Chuton was the person who owned the shop he played piano accordion and i remember his daughter was jan Tuton. now mm-hmm. the interesting thing is you would go up and you'd have a look you'd select a piece of music and jan would come up and say do you want to hear that and she would go over the piano and play that yeah and, that and was, isn't that amazing yep. that i mean that's the real universal language the conversation yep. of music she had the skill because she could read music yep. of turning black dots on a white bit of paper into sound yep. and then you decide whether you wanted that yep. piece of music and if not she'd take out another one yeah and uh that's that was a great sales thing but it was fantastic what i'm saying is all the time you're seeing music happening right in front of you yeah. why people yeah. doing it in front of you person playing the piano and i'll never forget that so we had this uh we had the record at home try a little kindness and i thought we'd take that around to bunny because we'd like to play that Mm. Song. So we took it around there. But what I'd heard, uh, remember, this is about four weeks uh, all up into the lessons. And I heard this sound. The part that I was really disappointed about after we got the music, I thought, damn, the bit I really like is the intro. Yeah. I mean, I like the whole song, but the bit mm. I really wanted to play had this great intro. Yeah. And uh, it didn't have it in the music. So mm-hmm. I'd worked out how to play it on the guitar. So we went around uh, by ear. I don't know how, but I, I just mm. were, I knew a couple of chords and uh, the ones I didn't know, I sort of filled in where they might be. So we go around to Bunny, put the piece of music, and he thought, well, that's nice. This shows he's sort of self-motivated. Mm. So he's ready to count in. He counts one, two, three, and he's ready to play where the tune starts, mm. if you see your brother standing by yep, the road. Yep. Uh, so I just launch into this uh, introduction, and, yeah. and, and then he just stops. Yep. And he's totally dumbfounded, and he gives me the look, and it just scared me. Mm. I'm thinking maybe, oh, hang on, uh, I shouldn't be doing this. So it put me off doing that type of thing uh, for a long time. But uh, looking back, and now I don't know how I worked it out. But um, I can remember, and, and yeah, <laughs> and and I think uh, there's a number of points there. Again, thinking of the music mind, my memory of your lessons was that it was ninety percent playing, yep. and ten percent talking about a scale yep. or a chord. It was very much like a half hour or more of playing with a good player. Is well, that your memory? Absolutely. Of the I, I can't really recall us talking about scales. At that stage, my uh, association with scales was fishes. Fish had yep. scales. Yep. Not 
Ignorant and I think that's really the opposite of how music is taught nowadays and has been for a long time. But uh, that's my memory. It's funny you talk about the Coles Nick Maniloff book. Okay. Um, my first memory of looking at that book was to smell, even though it was a new book, it smelt 200 years old. Yeah. And you had written or someone had written some of the notes, names uh, under the notes. Written in, but unfortunately, because the banjo, because it came from the banjo, and I, I can sense now that the... The teaching guitar, it was more like economic reasons yes. because the banjo yeah. was not um Banjo had had its time, then. which yeah. is sad because yeah. he was a, Unbelievable. a, a great banjo, banjo player. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But so, what I was saying with the, the book there, I was horrified at those low E's. Oh, I was too. And it's funny that years later I took up the clarinet and uh, the, the lowest note on the clarinet is actually the same as the lowest note on the guitar. And if you want to play the clarinet, clarinet was largely a reading instrument rather than an improvising instrument. You just had to learn to read, though. So I remember yeah. 15 years after being scared about yeah. that Nick Maloff yeah. book, those low E suddenly, and F and F sharp and G, and that suddenly becomes second nature to me. But I definitely do recall yeah. uh, you working through that book. Well, it was always debatable whether it was E or G. I knew it was one of them, oh, like down low in the ledger. Yes, things that's like exactly that. right. Look, an interesting thing there is that um, on the clip we played of Bunny playing the banjo, that was actually you... Yeah. Playing the rhythm on the, the second banjo, yeah. which I really don't ever remember. I do remember you having a banjo. In fact, we'll put up a, a photo now of, of, uh, some of our early equipment in the TV room and you'll see two tempo guitars because, uh, my entry into the guitar world came when, uh, Mike upgraded from the acoustic guitar to an electric. So like most younger brothers i inherited what mike had outgrown and my, my memory of your 17 dollar tempo is that it had an action that you could literally oh, run yes. a, a mac truck through and i was when i've actually got it i think i was eight going nine i can still to this day i still think i i've got the cuts in my index finger where blood would spurt out yep. when you particularly when you try to play the first position f chord yep, I've got the and, same. and have a yep. fair dinkum go yep. at it yep. i often think nowadays when people say mr hayes my hands hurting yep. i just sort of think i wished i had that 17 dollar tempo guitar to give to them but if you have a look at the the photo that we've got on the screen there you'll see the two electric guitars and a not the original tempo but a, but it must have been your upgraded tempo acoustic and over on the left, there's Mike's banjo. What what brand banjo was it? Do you remember anything about um, it? No, I can't. I no? think it might have been uh, a tempo uh, to. It didn't have the, the whatever the name had fallen off. Okay. And unfortunately, with banjos, you've got to have a good quality uh, brass or metal uh, hoop boots because that's yeah. what gives it the snap. And yeah. this was just tragically bad. But, yeah, um, it was a very. Uh, uh, limp sounding. Yeah, banjo. no, it, it, yeah. no matter what, what you did. And I was always mm. comparing the sound of that banjo with Bunny's, which yeah. was just phenomenal. Um, but of course, again, it's mostly from Bunny that the sound came from. But, uh, Bunny used to show me how to change the vellums, the, the, the skin, the head of the, the banjo. Mm -hmm. Show me how to cut the bridge so you'd, you'd cut it so it come to a point so you'd get a, a sharper sound. And okay. all, all little things like that, which was really uh, just definitely old skills. And, on the same uh, topic, we never thought about having a guitar set up. I mean, no. like, we just thought that's how hard, that's what you've got to do, man. Yeah. If you want to play the F chord, you're going to yep. have to work at it. It's so true. Yeah. And we'll 
be paying a bit of a tribute to people who have helped us over the years with repairing right. of instruments as part of this podcast. But I just want to go back to, uh, I vaguely remember you playing the banjo. So in essence, this was the start of your journey as a multi-instrumentalist. Most people who know you totally associate you with the guitar. But um, what dragged you or, or caught your attention about the banjo? Why did you end up playing the banjo for a period? Well, the banjo didn't attract me. Right. What actually happened is, uh, remember, we had like a limited uh, opportunities in, in those days, as we've said. So after 18 months, Bunny said, look, I've taught you all I can on guitar. But the thing is, I still wanted to go to the lessons. I okay. really enjoyed the lessons. Mm. And so the thing was, well, there's one way to keep going to the lessons, uh, is that how about you learn banjo? Mm. So that sort of was put for that idea at home. Okay. Both mum and that. So it wasn't my idea with no. the banjo. In fact, I'll be honest, all the way through, even though I've played other instruments, um, I've always felt that it took time away from the guitar. Now, it actually has been a big advantage playing these other instruments, mm. but at the time, really, I've been just single-minded guitar yeah. all the time. So, But the banjo was a wonderful thing because I'd get to go out and we'd play the CWA Morning yes. Tees. That's the Country Women's Association. Yep. That we have and the aged yes. homes yep. and everything. It was uh, My memory is that you and I played yep. you know, hundreds of yep. uh, free sort of gigs yep. where... Uh, and your teacher was largely responsible for yes. that because he'd drag you out and sort of say, you know, I'm playing Wednesday night for the or Wednesday lunch for the pensioners or something. Yeah. Come along. Um, so if I just in summary, you know, go back there, you always were attracted to the guitar. You were building your own guitars. Yeah. Um, and I just wish we had photos of that stuff. And, you know, <laughs> Me too. Uh, our parents were essentially... Uh, well, her father was essentially non-musical, um, and her mother come from a very casual, amateur, fun approach to music. Mm. I think that's an important thing, too, because, uh, you know, whilst we're having a serious discussion here today, I think you and I have really enjoyed many, many aspects of playing music. And, and we can get serious and play some serious music, but we, we also have had a lot of fun through it. Our Music has brought us a, a, a lot of fun. Oh, That's my absolutely. experience. Is that, would you agree Always. with that? Always. Yeah. Always fun. So as far as self-directed learning go, I think what, I, what I'm taking from that is you initially didn't like this idea of going to a teacher. No, you just right. wanted to have fun yeah. with the guitar. That's right. But you struck gold with an amazing teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And something you said just a minute ago I think is really important. Your teacher actually had the courage to say to you, I've, I've taught you everything I know about the guitar, because the guitar was very much, for Bunny, very much a second instrument. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. his thing. It was no. just like he was from a bygone era, um, and the instrument of his choice, the banjo, absolutely was once a very, very popular yes, instrument. Actually, yeah. But the popularity waned with the, the demise of vaudeville and all mm. of that sort of stuff. I think that's really important for people out there who are wondering whether to take lessons or lining up with a teacher. My experience sometimes is, is that the partnership with teachers can can really outgrow its yes. usefulness. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a rare situation for a teacher to actually say, hey, you know, I think it's time to move on. Yeah. So, Mike, as well as the banjo, I believe there was also a period where you 
took some piano lessons or, or delved into the world of yep. the keyboards. Tell us that story. All right, so I'm working in a music shop teaching guitar there and uh, very, very important people there, Earl Anderson and Maureen Anderson. Earl was very far-sighted, uh, had a lot to do with the Yamaha Corporation in America and, and Maureen was the first real musician that I saw could work things out by ear. Uh, I saw a witness that a kid come in one day with a cassette and he said, I'd like to, this is part of his lesson. I'm up trying to clean the guitars and wipe them down that and I'm looking at this happen in front of my eyes. And it never seems happened ever. But this guy says, look, I'd like to work out this one. This was part of his lesson. So obviously they, they did it regularly. Just put the cassette on and Maureen had listened to the song and then she just played it for him and showed him how to do it. Great. That's uh, a party trick I'd never seen happen ever mm. before that. But anyway, back to the, the music store. Earl said, look, uh, you, you're teaching here. And Earl did a really good thing. He put ads in the paper, so it started associating my, associating my name, Mike Hayes, with guitar. Very yep. important thing. Yes. And uh, always presented it well, good photos and the whole thing. And he said, look, if you're going to teach you, we're going to have to get you qualified. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know what that mm. means, you know. So, yeah. And no. I didn't like the sound of it. No. Uh, I thought this is going to hurt. But anyway, mm. uh, what the good thing was, I didn't have to go to work. They'd keep sending me off to these theory lessons and music lessons. Oh, so okay. Um, okay. Thursday morning or whatever day, yeah. where instead of Micah, apart from teaching, I'd yeah. actually, they'd send me up to do these theory lessons. Well, mm. a part of the theory lessons was uh, I would do theory and piano with this particular teacher. So the piano lessons were quite interesting because you'd be teaching, say, about four or five people. She'd have a person on organ, so they'd have their headphones on. You'd hear this clack, clack, clack on the on the, the pedals. You'd have some people studying theory. And then when you went over to piano, you'd actually had to put coins on the back of your hands. And wow. uh, this technique, yeah. I couldn't work out what that was about. So you'd go over there. And, but what it was, and I found out very quickly, is that when the coin fell off, it meant you weren't having the correct technique. So okay. you come over and they'd belt the heck out of you. Mm. Um, so that was very encouraging with the, the piano technique. Yeah. But what really struck me is the theory. I was really interested. I got interested in the theory. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember we were playing in bands at night and we were doing songs, you know, like the... That sort yep. of sound, right. Smoke on the water. Yep, smoke yeah. on the water. So we, we get into the theory. And so I thought, okay, there comes up this question here... Um, how would we deal with uh, the chord progression in the, in the key of G? And I'd written down G, B, flat, C, because we're playing that smoke in the water or yep. ACDC or whatever. And then yep. I, I got pulled up with that. I got Mark wrong there, and it was like, no Michael. Now, when they call me Michael, I always know I'm in trouble. Yeah, that's right. So instead of it going like this, how I was told it should correctly go is... Imagine that on Friday night, beautiful pub full of uh, that would have went really beautiful. well. Because in other words, some of those chords B flat isn't in the key of That's G, right. and they wanted you to. That's right. Use and the, uh, you'd get other questions, and they'd, they'd write, you know, can you have parallel fifths? Well, of course, that would be a say a power chord in, yes. in guitar things. Yep. And people like Eric Clapton they had that. And yes, you have that going all the time. So yep. they, the question was, can you have parallel fifths? And I wrote, yeah, because I'm mm. playing you're, that you're all the time. That and all no, time. and you can't. Yeah. In, in, in the theory, the classical theory, there's no way in the world for, for the, uh, exam. So this really bothered me. Uh, uh, I didn't work out for a long time that there's actually two types of theory. There's theory from the street. Yeah. Which you can't explain. No. Out of a standard theory book. And it bothered me because I couldn't work out what's going on. So I would, 
play what I heard, but then I have to put on a different hat when I do the theory exam, otherwise I get marked down. So this really did bother me. So did you eventually just walk or how did how did you you did get some theory qualifications? Yeah, no, they they did. And of course to top it all off, um, the person really thought I should be super qualified. So I end up overqualified because uh, there was an Australian music examination board mm-hmm. exams for theory. Yep. Uh, but because this person also came from the background of Trinity College in London, yep. they thought at the same time it'd be good for me to do those. Now the two yep. exams, so I'd get grade one and they'd have different questions. And they have uh, different yeah. different Italian terms and all this mm. sort of stuff. So basically, I got so confused out of the whole thing. And honestly, I'll, to be perfectly honest, I've never used it. No, uh, I don't. I could draw notes. I copied notes out from the lessons with Bunny. So the mm. things like was this a two beat note? I already knew what that was. And the techniques. I'm not saying that it's not useful, but it's not part of my world and hasn't been. Not part the way of my that world. you no, play no, or, no, or teach or work. So Mike. That's you. You had a, a a brief foray into the the field of being a banjo player. Yep. You did some classical music theory lessons and and actually a little bit of classical piano by very the sound brief, of it. Very brief. Um, I just want to for our viewers ah, show this album. This wow. is to this day probably my favourite tenor sax album of all time. It's the great Boots Randolph on an album called Sentimental Journey, but. This is critical in, um, well, in, in my music career, but, um, my, my memory is of you lying in bed staring at that album cover. And I, I have a very clear memory of you <laughs> with oh, no. a Sherlock Holmes style <laughs> magnifying <laughs> yep. glass. Can you, can you tell me what, what were you focusing on with the magnifying glass on, on that album? What was that all about? Well, you, you know how we uh, came in contact with the Gibson Fender guitar? Yeah. I thought, I want to find out what makes that sound. Yeah. And um, it had Selma. And I thought, well, that's the one I have to get then. So, so, so the <laughs> entire decision, yep. and yep. you've got to remember that this is in the, what, the early 1970s. Yep. Yep. The chance of someone ordering a Selma Paris top-of-the-line tenor saxophone. At that stage, it was the Mark VII. They'd just moved on from the Mark VI. I often wonder what they thought when an order come in from Gympie, Queensland, for a Selma tenor sax, the same as Boots Randolph was playing. But it's the best thing that ever happened because I do remember your saxophone playing was was unique in Uh, a way. Yeah, originally Uh, different. But what eventually happened is that Mike... um, gave up the saxophone and for fans of mine those two million views on my youtube channel many on my saxophone videos the tenor sax i play and have played for the last 40 years is the selma mark 7 tenor sax that mike purchased based on what he saw with a magnifying glass on the instrument that boots randolph was playing well i taped myself one day here, and I think I for the benefit of mankind, I, I wish we could find. Well, it. yes, uh, uh, I thought the best thing is to hand that on to somebody. That but actually, it's it. it's a part of the self-directed learning. Mike really was not a, a good saxophone player, but no. it was interesting. You heard him say before that it was really just one of these diversions that yep. that that he was finding his way back to the guitar. He kept playing the guitar all the time, yep. but uh, but Mike always and and both you and i have always looked beyond the small country town we were born in and um mike had the gall dare i say of sending a cassette tape of him playing was it the spanish flea was 
was there was a classic. Yes, there was yes, a, had a bottom B flat. But no, no, no. But no, how does the Spanish flag go? It had a bottom B flat. Yeah, Is that the Spanish flag? I don't know. I've forgotten how the Spanish flag goes. Sorry, Herb. No. But it wasn't that good. And Mike sent it to a guy called Peter Clinch in Melbourne, who was the the top professor of saxophone in the classical field and could also play jazz. And he also sent it to Graham Lyle mm. at a time when Graham was the music director at Channel 9 in Melbourne and also you'd see him nightly on the Don Lane show. Yeah. Uh, and to, a credit to both of those boys that they actually didn't just fob you off. They were, they yeah. invited you yeah. to, you know, correspond with them. Yeah. Um, and we'll learn a bit more about that side of, of Mike's uh entry into serious music learning in a moment. But first of all, I want to get back to the music and we'll play a clip here of Mike playing a contemporary country solo on the Fender Stratocaster. Um, I come from a, a, a pedal steel sort of background. In fact, behind us, it's an unusual piece of furniture. Here we've got a 12-string yeah. uh, universal pedal steel guitar just sitting there behind us. And I've spent a lot of my life playing steel. I actually hear influences, heavy influences in Mike's playing of the great pedal steel plays. Have a listen to Mike here playing a really good country solo in a contemporary style. And again, listening to that country solo we just heard, it actually doesn't sound like anyone else. That You could say there's influences there, but again, that very much to me sounds like Mike Hayes playing just with a different voice, the sound yep. of a country sound yep. on the guitar. But it still sounds like you. It doesn't sound like, you know, Bucky Barrett or some, you know, famous session guy no. in Nashville. And I think um, for those people watching this looking for you know, how to find your own way in the music world and to have a, a really happy life playing. I think one tip you're already hearing from Mike is to be yourself. Um, and we're going to look a lot more about the study that, that Mike has done. And I'm really interested in that. I love quotes and the famous quote of when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Absolutely. I think you've lived your life very Absolutely. much like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I just want to wrap up that multi-instrumentalist aspect because your teacher, Bunny, actually was a multi-instrumentalist. Yes. He was not that you or I ever heard him play, but he was certainly alleged to be a very good jazz trumpet player. Yeah. But Bunny learnt the trumpet to play the trumpet in the era of the pressure system and had a lot of health problems yeah. uh, because of just the way that he really didn't learn to play the trumpet uh, in an effortless way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but my recollection is he played the trumpet, had a history, a long history of playing the trumpet, uh, the banjo, and then onto the guitar. Yes, so he you also yeah. had a great singing voice too, a lovely yes, tenor voice. Uh, a great yeah, singing yeah, voice. Yeah. So your first teacher was a multi-instrumentalist. Yep. Having spent 50 years as a professional musician and having played some other instruments, what's your thoughts on a multi-instrumentalist approach to life versus zeroing in and, and spending your life dedicated to a single instrument. Um, 
if you were talking to a, a young student who was 13 years old like you were when you took up the guitar, um, what sort of advice do you think? What's your opinion of playing multiple instruments versus dedicating a life to one instrument? Well, I think it's an individual thing. Uh, it depends on the person, really. If you're going to do one instrument, like um, I'm just focusing on guitar, you have to be versatile. Um, in Australia, certainly. I mean, I believe you can specialise in the US uh, in, like, rock or jazz and that. But the the real ben benefit for me has been that I enjoy playing a lot of different styles. And as I said earlier, the music will tell me what to play. Uh but I really never felt comfortable on any of the other instruments. Um, uh, I've always had a work at the guitar too. I've, I work at it every day and I find it really hard. I don't find it easy at all. That's a really important point because most people who watch you play today and hear your recordings from 30 years ago would think that you're a natural. But no. my recollection is, is that I totally support what you said that that I've seen you in your youngest years really fight with that instrument. Yeah. It didn't come no. naturally to you. Um, and, and you started comparatively nowadays very late in yes. life on the guitar, yes. like at yes. 13. Yes. Uh, I mean, the other day um, I was in the Brisbane Mall. I'm living in Brisbane quite a lot nowadays, and Brisbane is very much a, a world city nowadays. In fact, it's put in the bid and will probably win the bid for the Olympic Games in, you know, in the early... Uh, 2030. But in the Queen Street Mall, uh, I'm just fascinated by you'll walk past, uh, you know, a busker that's got, um, uh, you know, soft drink bottles hammered into a, into, <laughs> into a broomstick. Yeah. And, and his total skill is that he just taps the stick, yep. you know, clunk, clunk. And then, and not many people are stopping to, fund that guy's... Uh, only to get it off him. <laughs> that soft drink bottle career. But you go 20 metres down the Queen Street Mall and uh, you see, uh, you know, a seven-year-old yeah, girl absolutely. Um, playing the heck yeah. out of a violin, playing oh, yeah. Mozart violin yeah. concertos yeah. without the music yeah. to a public that is just... It's the factor of, isn't that cute... But when I walk past, I think, isn't that great? Incredible. This kid is playing Absolutely. as if she was a 40-year-old concertmaster of the Sydney yeah. Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Um, so you didn't start, and for her to be playing that well yep. at six or seven years of age, this kid must have had a violin in hands from three. Oh, definitely. You know, and, and playing yeah. so much. Yeah. But it's, I think it's a really important thing in the music mind. Mike has become a master guitar player, but has had to fight his way to get there, and, and you've heard him say that he, he still yep. has that little battle every day with the guitar, and I imagine some days the guitar wins and occasionally you do. The guitar wins most days. Yeah. It does. So your advice is it's it's um, up to the individual. I think you and me are classic examples yeah. of that. I've got a room full of instruments here, yeah. um, and I, it's, a whole, it's a story for a whole other day, but my approach to... Um, playing multiple instruments is I've never been interested in being the best on any. In fact, I've never wanted to be a sax player or a flute player or a pedal steel player. I just hear different sounds in my head and I, the only way I can express myself with those sounds is to play the instrument that fits that sound. Well, I think you that's know? the key there, Brian, because mm. what I hear in my head most of the times are arrangements 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so I don't, getting back to so the country style and that, I, I think, okay, if it's a country song, what would be appropriate? Mm. That's what, and so you put on a little bit brighter sound on the guitar and a different tool. Yeah. I only have a couple of guitars. I don't, I'm not a guitar collector. I'm a guitar player. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, I would get the sound that's appropriate for, for a country song. But most of the time, what I'm hearing are arrangements. So I don't really, if, if, if I'm playing for myself or if somebody said, what do you like to do if I do solo guitar and jazzy types of things and that, um, it's always, I hear, arrangements in my head and I try and find those sounds on the guitar now there's the situation where we're both saying the same thing you, yeah you hear these different sounds yep and thank god people like you play because if I'm doing an arrangement I hear a flute I can get a flute you can play the flute there or the baritone sax that's the color for yeah. the arrangement I think this is really important and and um, the great James Morrison the very famous uh, jazz trumpeter and multi-instrumentalist in Australia basically says the same thing. He hears sounds. If I hear the Pink Panther, I own a tenor saxophone, your former tenor saxophone. I'm going to pick up the tenor saxophone. I'm not right. going to play that on the guitar. Yeah. You know, um, but, but it's important what Mike just said before, I think, as far as the music mind goes, is that he hears orchestrations in his head. He hears the finished... I'm sure the way you play, you're not just hearing a single note guitar line when no, you play. No, I'm hearing... This started from hearing, I have to say, that Oscar Waters across the road mm. and, and these arrangements from the Pickwick Doc Severson records, yeah, command, yeah. They, they'd come firing across the yeah. road and I can still hear that type of phrasing. That, mm. that, and when I'm wanting to play something, if I picked up the guitar now, I'd be hearing phrasing like that. Yeah, and uh, try and emulate that. I think this is really important that Mike's sound—he does not—he plays the guitar different than just about anyone else you'll see play. If you listen, he sustains the notes, and I think you said that uh, in a contemporary sense there was an album by the great Lee Rittenour called yeah, what's it called? Feel, Feel the Night by Lee Rittenour. We'll put that up on the screen for those yeah. who are interested. And what is it about that album? Because I must admit, when you're playing in a contemporary style, you absolutely don't sound like anyone. The notes are very full. They're very sustained. I've already talked about those massive bends that you, the guitar can be a, a pluck a duck type instrument to me, uh, sort of as the piano can if it's not well played, where it's dink, donk, dink, donk, dink. Yeah. Yep. No sustain, or in a, in a contemporary sense, the effects are trying to play the instrument rather than the yep. player. True, true. But tell me more about Lee Rittenew. We've got that up on the screen for people. That album. Okay, tell us about that's that. That's a sort of defining moment uh, as well, because I would listen to that record practically every night. Uh, again, for probably a couple of years, uh, almost every night with headphones on, and it just blew me away. And I'm thinking, how the heck does he get that guitar to sustain that long? And of course, the hilarious part out later on, I found out that all the lead, uh, the, the melody parts, the lead lines were played in unison with the tenor sax. So, uh, Ernie Watts played yep. the tenor sax in unison with Lee's part, uh, who Lee played with an overdriven guitar. Beautiful sound, terrific player, Lee and Ernie. But that whole record introduced me to people like Steve Gadd and people like that that is absolutely the whole record, I thought the arrangement you'd have Chuck Finley on, on trumpet. trumpet it's a fantastic yeah. record, folks. So yeah. one of the things with these podcasts, um, when we 
hear great players like my talk about players and albums and what have you that's influenced him, do some homework. Check out these famous recordings. Check out these players. If you want to play like Mike Hayes, you need to have in your head the types of sounds that he's got in his head and you'll find your own way to play. But it's really important. One of the saddest things for me as a music teacher is, oh, you know, if I'm teaching a saxophone student for the first time, one of my first questions is, oh, well, you know, who's your favourite sax player? Oh, Nine times out of ten, the answer is just a blank stare. Oh, I like the way you play, Brian. Well, hang on. You haven't actually heard me sort of play. Yeah. Who other than me yeah. have you heard? And I think it's a real sign, you know, if... Uh, you know, if, if you ask that question of a good student, they say, like, I like John Coltrane, I like Stan Getz yep. and Sonny Stitt. You think, well, hello, we're in for a ride here yep. because this guy has got some, whether or not I think those references are good, this he or she has got some really good professional That's references. That's it, Brian. I really yep. believe you, you create a good player has audio references in their mind. Let's have a listen to Mike. We j he just talked about Lee Rittner in a contemporary sound. Let's have a listen to Mike again with his Fender Strat playing a contemporary solo here. That's a great sound, Mike, on the guitar there. Everything we've been talking about, a very singing sound. Uh, it just doesn't sound like the mind of a guitar player. So I hope that doesn't disappoint you, having spent your whole <laughs> life focusing on guitar. But really, folks, Mike does play in his own way. It's a very melodic way. Uh, I read a quote. I love quotes. Recently, I, I read a quote where the great Jerry Bird, and we'll talk a little bit about Jerry Bird in a moment when we talk about some of your memories of performance but someone asked Jerry Bird you know how you know what's the most important qualities in music and everyone would be thinking well you know the music theories well you know pitch duration and intensity you know and Jerry said melody melody and melody that's and I, I, I think that. that's lovely because I think even if you're playing the rhythm instruments if you play the chords in yeah. a melodic way it just makes such a yeah. difference so one of the the greatest all-time lap steel players, that was his answer to what makes up music. Yeah. Mate, I want to go forward now to our your performing career. Um, and I certainly shared some many moments with you in performing. I want to take you back to what's your memory of the very first time that you played in public? And I, I remember standing next to you when we did this, but... Uh, what's your recollection of the first time in public that we played anywhere? All right, I think it's a uh, it was a place called White Scully. I think it was like a footy footy field. Yeah, and they had like a fate or something on there. It had the back of a truck. This That's truck, right. Uh, and um, yeah. and we thought we were pretty good because we had two electric guitars and mm. uh, we had a, two tempos, a, two tempos, That's right. matching guitars, yes. and a twelve watt golden tone amplifier. And wasn't it golden? Oh, it was tone. golden. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget, we we sat up there and the, and the sound guy said, well, you know, do you want us to mic it up and stuff? And we're like, no way, stand back. Yes. We look up for our power. own sound. We've got our own got sound here. Amplifier yeah, there. That's it. 
and this is a 12 watt amp outside. <laughs> That's and we couldn't even, you couldn't even hear it in the front where we we couldn't hear it from the front of the the truck. Like you know? all I can think is, all I'm thinking of is what were we thinking? But yeah. there was a there was a pride in yeah. our yeah. we want no. to control our yeah. sound, and it's That's really right. interesting that. Uh, that truck, by the way, as Mike said, was open back. It had neither no, a roof no, nor a back. No size. So, no, no. And, and, and this is a hundred meter yep. by, you know, yep. 80 meter rectangular uh, yep. open space. Yep. And, and as Mike said, I, I actually couldn't hear us. And <laughs> the PA guy, and, and, and look, I've got to use PA with quotes there yes. because in this era the concept of a PA was literally those loud hailers. Yeah. Dixie chickens here. <laughs> and he just had the the upmarket model <laughs> right. of those. I think I don't even know whether he had stereo, whether he had two no. or just one. Because he'd drive around with that on a truck. Yeah. So he was he's more or less less more or less the old time lime uh, line tamer promotion yeah. for the That's circus right. Absolutely. men. Absolutely. Yes. yes. I think that was his but, other but gig, the yeah. fact that we refused yep. The help of the only chance we had of anyone hearing us <laughs> was how we started our performance career. But I think also he, an introduction to the uh, music <laughs> industry too, because during the break and just be careful again, we won't mention no, any names. Disclaimer but, there. But Mike uh, and I received our first, I guess, payment yes, for playing. Uh, yeah, Did you remember yeah, the, the, the terms of the, the guy said? That was great, fellas. Here, go buy yourself a drink. And he gave us, say, 25 cents. Yeah. And uh, this was for two drinks. Yeah. And one drink was costing 45. So we yeah. were just short of buying one. We couldn't, we couldn't buy one, drink. one soft drink no. with the money that we were no. paid. Um, so we couldn't even share two no. straws no, well, we, with the one straws soft drink. And, and yeah. I suppose that comes under the chapter, hello, welcome to the music, music business. business. That's right. It hasn't changed. No. That's where we'll leave part one of this three-part conversation where we look into the music mind of one of the best, the great Mike Hayes, a 50-year career as a professional musician while living in his hometown, a small regional city in Queensland, Australia. To fade out, let's have a listen to Mike the versatility of his playing where he plays in a jazz trio setting here playing jazz guitar with acoustic bass and acoustic drums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 